Good morning to everyone. You can hear me okay? All right, very good. Well, greetings from the north side of town, where my family and I live, and from Phoenix Seminary further east, where I get to teach theology, and it's a pleasure to see some familiar faces from the seminary uh, at the church today. Just met uh, Pastor John in person for the first time, and have seen some others in class. It's a pleasure to be out here in the West Valley. Uh, I've never preached on Halloween before. I do not think it is on the church calendar, though as uh, Pastor John mentioned, it is a time of remembering, October 31st, that is, is a time of remembering uh, the beginnings of the Reformation, which is a great thing. If you came thinking you'd hear a Halloween-based message uh, attacking the evils of trick-or-treating, I'm afraid the sermon will be disappointing. On the other side, if you came uh, hoping for a Halloween sermon uh, praising the virtues of Halloween costumes and candy and other things, that too will end in disappointment. But if you came here to think on the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, then you're in the right place. Amen? A friend of mine is a pastor at another church here in the valley. His kids are a little bit older than ours. And one day he was telling me about the trials and tribulations of parenting a teenage boy. A teenage boy trying to learn how to be a man how to take responsibility for things, how to communicate with members of the opposite sex, and so forth. My friend's son got mad at him one day and yelled, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. I'm pretty sure my friend kept back his laughter in that moment because apparently laughing at a child's problems is not proper parenting. But this friend, the dad, was thinking in the moment, son, you must realize that logically speaking, if I am a male human in his 30s, well, I was once a male human in his teens, going through the same kinds of things you're dealing with. Now, I bring that up to point out that when we human beings are really frustrated or down about something, we can spiral into thinking there is no one else who understands this problem we have. And that, of course, isn't true. There's nothing we experience that is absolutely unique or has never been experienced by someone else. But even if other people may have experience with the conditions of our life, have you ever thought, well, God certainly doesn't get it? Have you ever thought, well, God doesn't understand the weaknesses and sorrows and anxieties that fallen human beings carry around week after week? Those might be passing thoughts in the moment, but they may also be indicative of an inaccurate view of God, a cynical view of God. And if we have an inaccurate or cynical view of God, we can end up in a spiritually unhealthy place, not trusting God, not coming to him with our prayers, not having a way to faithfully endure the hard times that inevitably do come to us in this life. Now, when people try to deal with that question, does God understand? They sometimes lean toward the idea that God in his very nature is like us, subject to weakness and suffering like us. Or they might lean toward the idea that while God may have some notion of our weakness and suffering, he has no firsthand experience of it. But the Bible actually carves out a middle road between those two extremes. God in his divine nature, while he understands us, is not just like us, not subject to weakness and suffering like us, but God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Son whom we often call Jesus took on flesh and blood 2,000 years ago so that God the Son, in his humanity, has really had firsthand experience with our human weakness and grief 
and sorrow and distress. And in our passage this morning, Hebrews 2, we'll focus especially on verses 14 through 18. We'll see that God the Son, Jesus, has done this for a specific purpose, or specific purposes, plural. In other words, Jesus didn't do this because we demand that he suffer. Instead, he did it because of a divine plan for our salvation. Because we needed to be rescued from our sin and rebellion against God and our estrangement from God. But such is his goodness and mercy that within his plan to rescue us, God gives us the Son to be our Savior who does have firsthand experience of our human condition so that we have even more reason to trust him and come near to him in our weakness and sin. For the rest of the sermon, there are three main things I'd like to focus on in our passage. One, the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. Two, why he took on flesh and blood, and there, are, there is more than one purpose. Three, how to respond or the practical implication of Jesus taking on flesh and blood. I think you have an outline, a simple outline that corresponds to that in your uh, worship bulletin. So one, the fact that he took on flesh and blood. Two, why he did so. Three, how, how do we respond? Let's read this passage, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, let's come first to the fact that Jesus did this. What does this fact or this event mean? Well, to understand it, it's important to look back. You don't have to physically look back just yet. I'll talk about it. Look back to what is said in Hebrews 1 about the same person, Jesus. This same Jesus is not just any person. In Hebrews 1, he's actually identified as the true God, the creator, just as much as the Father is the true God, the creator. If you read Hebrews 1, you'll find that Jesus is described like a beam of light shining out from God the Father and perfectly representing God the Father. He has everything the Father has. That's why he can perfectly represent God the Father. He's also described as the creator God who laid the foundations of the world. The, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews 1 uh, there quotes from Psalm 102 and applies that to Jesus. Created things wear out, that psalm says, but he remains eternally the same. So if you thought that only the Father was the true God, the creator God, and Jesus was maybe a secondary figure, a lesser version of God, this passage corrects that sort of idea. Jesus is truly and fully God and is so together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Am I making this echo up here? Okay. 
You can also look at verse 17 in our passage, Hebrews 2.17, and see that Jesus had to be made like us in order to face trials and suffering, which implies something about his divine nature. In his divine nature, he wasn't subject to that sort of thing. Think about what that means. That means when Jesus takes on flesh and blood, someone who is fully God, already complete, never subject to losing anything or needing anything, never bossed around by anybody else, that is the sort of person who freely and generously took upon himself a human nature for our salvation. The sort of person who needs nothing for himself, but takes pleasure in giving himself for others. You'll notice that in Hebrews 2.14, when Jesus takes upon himself a human nature, it's called flesh and blood. One way to put this is, this is not a Terminator version of humanity. Flesh and blood. To be clear, he remained divine and all-powerful when he took on flesh and blood, but his divine nature is distinct from his human nature. He's one person with two distinct natures. That means his divine nature didn't come in and erase the genuine human nature he had, didn't make it superhuman. His human nature was still a lowly human nature like ours, could be described as ordinary flesh and blood, subjected to the ordinary weaknesses and frailties of human life. You can see in verse 17 that Jesus was made like us, his brothers and sisters, in every way. An amazing statement, though, as Hebrews 4 tells us, he never sinned. Throughout the history of the church, interpreters of the Bible have pointed out that Jesus took on a human nature that was subjected to ordinary defects or weaknesses after the fall. To put it mildly, human experience was more pleasant before the fall. Before Adam and Eve sinned against God and led our race into rebellion against God, human life was not yet characterized by the loss and the grief that we experience now. But Jesus willingly took upon himself a human nature after the fall with all that pain and hardship. In his humanity, he was not sinful, but in his humanity, he was still exposed to things like hunger, thirst, cold, grief, sorrow, fear, loneliness. You might think that Jesus being fully God as well as fully human somehow canceled out his real human experience of human grief, and so forth. But that wasn't the case. It meant that he could never sin, but it did not at all cancel out his experience of human grief and fear and so on. So you have to be careful in how we think about Jesus here. On the one hand, it's true that he was always led by the Holy Spirit, always filled with wisdom and faithfulness to his Father. On the other hand, though, it was always part of God's plan to let the Son, Jesus, have natural human desires like the desire for physical well-being, the desire for food and water, the desire for companionship, and so forth. And it was always part of the plan that Jesus would taste the bitterness of having to deny natural desires, taste the bitterness of human trials in full. In fact, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, our passage this morning emphasizes that Jesus had to do this in order to fulfill his mission. We can see this played out in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. When Jesus is in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, he's been fasting for 40 days. He's genuinely experiencing hunger and weakness. And that is why Satan tries to get him to create bread to eat. 
in John 12, to take another example, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. That meant something. It wasn't just play acting. Now my soul is troubled, and what will I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's talking about the hour of his coming death. Then he adds, but I have come for this hour. He feels the weight of what's coming and the distress that it brings. In his human desires, he's not immune to pain or, or to the anticipation of pain, but he doesn't back away from it. Something similar happened in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Jesus was crucified. In that moment, Jesus takes his three closest disciples to be with him, and the Gospels tell us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and anxious. He even says that he is sorrowful to the point of death. It's as if Jesus, according to one early reformer's commentary on this, it's as if Jesus is already half dead on account of the weight that he feels. Anticipating both the bodily pain of the crucifixion and the mental pain of bearing judgment for our sins. Not only that, but after Jesus asked those three disciples to stay with them, he finds that they fell asleep. And after that, one of the men who spent three years with Jesus, Judas Iscariot, is the one who betrays him and hands him over to undergo an unjust trial. So Jesus is facing bodily pain, mental pain, sorrow, the abandonment of friends, fully God and at the same time fully human and fully connected to human experience. Yet we notice, as Hebrews 4 points out, Jesus never sins in these trials. An analogy might be helpful here. Imagine you've got a damaged tooth. Apologies if this is in fact your situation, and I'm reminding you of it. Imagine you've got a damaged tooth, and you know that you have to go to the dentist next week for a root canal. My apologies if this is you. Good dentists can take care of this well now, but no one likes the idea of going to get a root canal, so let's go with this for a minute. Most people would have some fear or anxiety anticipating that appointment, but you can do one of two things. You can let the anxiety overwhelm your good judgment and cancel the appointment, hoping the tooth will magically fix itself. That may not be a morally evil decision per se, but still probably not going to end well. Or you can feel the fear and anxiety, but stick to your good judgment. Keep the appointment and go get your tooth fixed properly. Now, when Jesus was experiencing sorrow, fear, and so forth, he did the second thing. He stuck to his good judgment and remained faithful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked the Father if he might avoid the cross, but he did not let his emotions overwhelm his good judgment. He stuck to his good judgment and submitted his human will to the plan of God so that he never sinned. But here's the thing about that. Instead of canceling out the experience of suffering, it actually made it harder. Going back to that analogy, if you cancel the dentist appointment, if you push the eject button, you get relief from the anxiety, your tooth will get worse, but at least the anxiety from the appointment goes away temporarily. But if you keep that appointment, you have to drink that cup of anxiety in full and persevere in the midst of it. Jesus didn't push the eject button. He persevered in the midst of the sadness, the fear that he felt. So instead of Jesus' unique sinlessness, distancing him from pain and grief, it actually confirms that he faced the full depth of pain and grief for our sake. One more thing about the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood. It means that he's our brother. Look again at verse 17 in our passage. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers or brothers and sisters in every respect. So God the Son is our brother now? Well, if you look back a few verses, and actually you heard these read in the sermon in the, uh, the scripture reading this morning, in verses 11 and 12, you'll find a picture of Jesus standing in a big assembly before God the Father, not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. God the Son has stooped so low by taking on human flesh that if we trust in him, we not only may, but should regard him as our older brother. Just to be clear, the book of Hebrews is teaching that the eternal Son, who existed before the world began, who governs the entire universe and holds it in the palm of his hand, that person chose to become our older brother and is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We could think of a thousand ways or more that this should affect our daily life. We'll get to one shortly that Hebrews emphasizes in particular, namely that we should always come to him to receive mercy. But I'd like to highlight another one here along the way, and that is that we have strong reasons to trust that God is good in a world filled with evil and suffering. My daughter asked me one day, why didn't God make us just like we're going to be in heaven? Built into that question is a sense that God first made humanity in such a way that we could be tempted by Satan and bring evil and destruction and suffering into the world. There's also the sense, she's a very astute theologian after all, there's also the sense that when those who are saved by Christ arrive in heaven or in God's new creation after Christ returns, we will be confirmed in our righteousness and holiness so that we will never sin again. So if God is taking us there in the end, and if it's not necessarily a violation of our free choice to be unable to sin, why didn't God start us out that way? Skip over the sin and the sadness. There are some important and helpful points we could discuss here, far be it from me as a seminary professor, to minimize those. <clears throat> but in response to that sort of question, I'm not sure I know all the reasons God chose to bring the human race through a time of testing and difficulty. But I do know that we can trust a God who didn't exempt himself from the difficulty and instead took on flesh and blood to suffer for us. I hope that might be some help to our faith in seasons of doubt and questioning. Let's come to the second uh, main part of the sermon, why Jesus took on flesh and blood. What are the purposes here? The passage that we have in front of us identifies a few. Really, we can see one big overarching purpose. He came to help us human beings that are called the children of Abraham. The writer specifies that Jesus didn't come to help the angels. That kind of mission would have looked different. The mission is for helping Abraham's children who partake of flesh and blood. That's why Jesus himself partakes of flesh and blood. Remember that Abraham was the man of great faith early in the book of Genesis. And God promised that through Abraham, he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. That promise finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And Abraham's children are those who trust in the promises of God and ultimately trust in Jesus as God's appointed Savior. Abraham's children include all those who do this, whether they are ethnically Jewish people who follow Jesus or people of other ethnicities who follow Jesus, whom we often call Gentiles, like I, I assume most of us here today. So that's the overarching purpose. Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to help Abraham's children, who are of 
flesh and blood. But we can break this down into some more specific purposes that show up here. There are several, and I'd like us to think about three and try to take them in the order that they appear in in this passage. One is in verses 14 and 15. Read with me there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice that there's a purpose indicated there, that or, or in order that or so that through death he might do this. So one purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood is to use death to destroy the power of death or the one having the power of death and to free us from the fear of death. Now to state the obvious, death is what occurs when the human body stops functioning. According to scripture, after that occurs, the human soul or human spirit continues on, human consciousness continues on, and ultimately each person ends up either at peace in God's presence or cast out from God's presence, awaiting a final judgment for unrepentant sin and wrongdoing. Death was not an automatic part of the human condition. It was implemented as a consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. It's a source of pain and sadness and angst for humanity. And Satan has used it to tyrannize people with his own destructive goals, which is why the author of Hebrews calls him the one who held the power of death. What's really shocking here is the way that Jesus is portrayed in relation to death. As God, of course, Jesus is immortal. He could not die. As human, he could die, and in fact did die. But notice how Jesus relates to death. By contrast, for us, death is something that happens to us. We don't call the shots on how we relate to it. For Jesus, though, death is something he purposely uses, like an instrument or a weapon. He used death to destroy death, and the devil who holds the power of death. That is not normal. How would he use death to destroy death and the devil? Well, there seems to be at least two aspects to this if we read throughout the whole Bible. One, he used his own death to take away our sin and guilt so that sin and death and Satan no longer have the final word over us. Two, he himself rose from the dead to triumph over death and Satan and to give us a share in his life and immortality. Again, that is not normal. He used death on purpose and then went into the tomb and came out alive. I'm reminded of a show that I used to watch with a highly trained military guy who becomes an ordinary citizen but still likes to fight the bad guys. You know, the kind of show that has five million other shows that are very similar to it. <laughs> but this guy would sometimes go into a room or building filled with tough guys and criminal masterminds, people plotting terrible things, and the camera wouldn't follow. The camera would stay outside, and you would just hear all kinds of sounds and things breaking and guys getting flipped over tables. And then the main character would emerge from the building without a scratch on him, maybe just straighten his tie as he walks away after taking everybody down. Well, with regard to Jesus, he did certainly experience physical and mental suffering, but then he went into a tomb near the city of Jerusalem. No camera followed. A stone was rolled over the opening of the tomb to close it up. No camera was there recording exactly what it looked like. 
but Jesus and death were in that tomb, and only one came out alive. To be clear about that, Jesus coming back, Jesus being raised, it's not as if Jesus merely made a strong impression on his followers so that by some spiritual influence in their lives, he somehow lives on in their hearts and memories. No, the gospel is that his body was laid to rest in a tomb on a Friday in the springtime about 1,990 years ago. And then in that same body, now immortal, on a Sunday, he got up and went out of the tomb to be seen and heard and even touched by other people. He triumphed over death so that by being connected to him, we also could share in his life and victory. If you look back down at verse 15, you can see that this purpose of defeating the power of death and Satan has to do not only with the outward circumstances of the whole thing, but also with the feeling we have in our hearts, with our inward approach to thinking about the problem of death. Jesus took on flesh and blood, not only to defeat Satan, but to, to liberate us from the fear of death. Fear of death is a common human experience. Of course, there may be some super tough people out there who will claim they've never been afraid of death. I'm inclined to think that they may be full of something that shall not be named from the pulpit, or they haven't thought about it very much. Our culture is very skillful at diverting attention away from the reality of death. We have modern medicine that extends our lives. We have nursing homes so that we spend less time with those who are nearing death. We have graveyards that are easily avoided in our daily routines. And we have smartphones that provide a constant source of distraction. But death still shows up. And it's hard to think about because death involves, among other things, a disruption of our normal experience with our body. It involves going on to be conscious and to operate without the normal connection to our body. And that is weird. It means going somewhere we've never been and leaving other people behind. I actually do think I've known some people who aren't really afraid of death, but that hasn't come by ignoring it or just trying to be tough. That comes from letting the truth of Jesus' resurrection sink into one's heart over and over and over again. It comes by meditating on a passage like Hebrews 2. And I also recommend 1 Corinthians 15 when you read the Bible this week where Jesus in that passage has taken the victory and the sting from death so that when we serve him, we know our lives are not in vain. One of the things that seems most frightening about death is that nobody goes and then comes back to tell us what to expect. But actually, to be accurate, almost nobody goes and comes back and tells us what to expect. I've heard people say, um, that we just can't know what's true about the life to come because no one's been there, no one's qualified to speak with authority on such a matter. In response, we might say, well, what if someone died and then lived to tell about it? In fact, that is Jesus, who didn't just stop breathing for 10 seconds and then get revived by paramedics, but stayed in the grave three days and then just walked out because he wanted to. And didn't just escape from death, but actually killed death on his way out and came back to inform us what to expect. In short, if you have turned from living contrary to God, if you've repented and turned toward Jesus to receive forgiveness and new life, what to expect is this. You will either A, die before Jesus returns, but be content in his presence in heaven. 
waiting for the return of Jesus and for your resurrection body and the renewal of creation. Or you might live until Jesus returns and then receive the resurrection body and enjoy the new creation in God's presence forever and ever. Obviously, death still happens, and we should be honest about how painful it is. It's unsettling. It separates us from loved ones. Thankfully, Scripture gives us resources to voice grief and sadness, like the Psalms in particular. But in God's kindness toward us, he hasn't left us without hope in the face of death. It's because of our sin that death came into human existence in the first place, but God still chose to deliver us from the fear of death. That is one purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, and it's worth meditating on whether we're coming out of a pandemic or living in the midst of ordinary life. Another purpose behind Jesus taking on flesh and blood can be found in verse 17. Look there. The verse says, Therefore he had to be made like, a, like his brothers in every respect, so that, okay, another purpose, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. So one of the purposes of Jesus taking on flesh and blood was for him to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember that a high priest is a figure, uh, a figure who mediates between God and the people. Old Testament priests had special access to God and would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people so that their sins could be taken away. In the New Testament, and especially in Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest and the mediator between God and people. This verse says that Jesus had to become, in particular, a merciful high priest. Of course, as God, Jesus was already full of the perfect goodness of God. He was already merciful in that sense. But there's something new that happens when Jesus becomes merciful in this passage. On the one hand, Jesus, as God, already fully knew our human condition and was inclined to help us in our misery, which is what the attribute of mercy means. On the other hand, though, Jesus did not yet have firsthand experience of our weaknesses and griefs. He did not yet have that experience as a factor that moved him to pity us. And in that sense, he had to become a merciful high priest for us. There are actually a couple of places in Hebrews that mention this kind of development in Jesus' life. According to Hebrews 2.10, he was perfected through suffering. According to Hebrews 5.8, he learned what it was to obey the Father from the things that he suffered. It's not that Jesus didn't already know about suffering or obedience. It's not that he wasn't already inclined to be merciful. It's just that he didn't start out with a firsthand experience of suffering and obedience. So when it came to acquiring that firsthand experience, he had to be perfected through a path of suffering and in that sense become a merciful high priest. Among other things, this means that if you're a Christian, you have Jesus as your priest, your mediator in heaven, at the Father's right hand, looking at you with a heart of love and mercy. Sitting in heaven right now, he remembers the trials of life. He not only cares about you, but he's been there himself. He's been there himself. In his Huge and excellent commentary on the book of Hebrews. The great uh, Christian theologian John Owen comments that Christ sees us fighting through the storms that he himself faced and is now provoked 
by the memory of his own suffering to help us in our suffering. Finally, a third purpose of Jesus taking on flesh and blood can be found in verse 17. Looking there again, right at the end of that verse, it says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He took on flesh and blood and became a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word, propitiation, may not be a usual word that we use often in contemporary English, but it simply means the satisfaction of God's wrath or God's condemnation for sin. It must be clear that God isn't harmed by our sin. He doesn't lose his temper. But in his justice and holiness, he does despise evil. He despises our arrogance and cruelty toward one another so that he does not accept sin and does not permit sin to go unpunished. Part of Jesus' mission then was to take upon himself the consequences of our sin and bear God's condemnation of sin on the cross. He did nothing wrong himself, but he shed his own blood for us and carried the judgment of God in our place. He never lost the love of his father. In fact, he pleased the father by being willing to lay down his life for us. But he was painfully aware that he carried our guilt and had the judgment of God directed toward him on the cross. The upshot is our wrongdoing and rebellion against God has to be dealt with one way or another. Those who are not connected to Jesus as their high priest and mediator have to face God's condemnation for themselves. But those who are connected to Jesus through faith have the assurance that he faced God's condemnation for us and rose from the dead to offer us his perfect mercy and forgiveness through faith in him. All right, let's come to the last main part here. How to respond or what is the practical implication? I'm going to cheat a little bit here because there's not really one place in this passage that calls us to action. The call to action is implicit everywhere, and it's got different dimensions to it. But the thing I'd like to highlight here is simply this. Come to Jesus. Verse 18 tells us that because he suffered while being tempted, he can help others who are being tempted. Now, Jesus' experience of temptation was definitely different from ours. We have selfish desires in our hearts and can be led astray by them. Jesus never had those selfish desires, but he did have natural human desires for things like food, comfort, companionship, a longer life that he had to deny. That means he knows the pain of fighting temptation and staying faithful to God. It also means that he has a heart of mercy toward anyone willing to come to him. For any who have been lax toward God, knowing you've been living contrary to God, you need to know that Christ has a heart of mercy toward everybody who comes to him. But you do have to come to him. It doesn't suffice to have a general idea of God or to vaguely believe that there is a God out there. That alone won't make you right with God because God has shown himself to us in a particular way, in the person of Christ, who's the only one qualified to bring us forgiveness of sins and make us right with God. The good news is that that person, Christ, is full of mercy and ready to welcome everybody who turns from living against God and puts their trust in him to be their savior. When you do that, you have God's forgiveness. You have new life with Christ. Going into a church building or listening online doesn't automatically make that happen. You have to intentionally turn toward Jesus and place your trust in him. At the same time, after that, 
even if going into a church building doesn't automatically make you a Christian, putting your faith in Christ and becoming a Christian will lead you to be involved in a healthy church so you can grow in following Christ. There are pastors and, and other leaders and members here that I'm sure would be more than happy to talk with you further about that and give guidance. You're welcome to see me, but these are the folks that are around this congregation week by week. And then for those who have already become Christians and are trying to walk the path of faithfulness, even if it's very imperfect, like it is for all of us, Christ's heart is still full of mercy toward us. When you sin, he wants you to confess it quickly and ask for help to grow. Don't make the mistake of thinking Jesus probably wants you to stay away from him. That is not the case. He wants you to come quickly. Come back quickly. If you're a genuine believer in Christ, when you commit a sin, you haven't lost the love of God. But you need to turn back quickly so that you can be spiritually healthy. Let's turn from our sin quickly and receive Christ's mercy so that we can have the rich joy that he offers to us. Alongside Hebrews 2, let's listen to what Hebrews 4 says about this, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Almighty Father, thank you for your kindness in sending your Son to take on flesh for our salvation. Thank you that he came to help the children of Abraham, taking on flesh and blood, dying to atone for our sins, rising again to defeat death and Satan who held the power of death. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us, a desire to, fill us with a desire to know and love Christ more and more in light of what Scripture teaches us about him. We pray that you would help us to grow in Christ this week. We pray for any here who are not yet in Christ, who do not yet have faith in him, please work in their hearts to turn them to Christ. We ask that you would bless the rest of this service, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.